This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for August 5th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. This week we actually have a feature story from a special issue on grass. Overall, the special issue is on how grasslands are important, have a role to play in climate change, good things about grass. But on the podcast, we have Warren Cornwall, a contributing correspondent for science. He's going to talk about invasive grasses that feed fires for their own benefit. Also this week on the podcast, we have researcher Evan Economo. He joins me to discuss his Science Advances paper on creating a map of global ant diversity. Such maps help us better understand how vertebrate and invertebrate diversity overlap or don't and what this means for conservation. In this podcast segment, we're going to talk about the dark side of grasses. Invasive grass that almost seems to stoke fires to push out competitors and take their place in the landscape. And Warren Cornwall, a contributing correspondent for science, is here to tell us about it. But first, I want to mention science's special issue on grass, which is out this week. Humans started cultivating certain grasses for food 10,000 years ago, and they still dominate agriculture today. Six or seven grass species provide most of the calories that we consume. But the way that grasslands contribute to soil, to carbon storage, and to habitat for animals is often overlooked. Okay, on to the invasive, fire-friendly grasses that Warren wrote about. Hi, Warren. Hi, Sarah. So I got the not all grass is bad part out of the way so we can talk about the bad boys of the grass world. How did you come to write about invasive grasses and their relationship with fire? Well, I've written about wildfires for a number of years, but often the attention falls on forest fires. But I live in the western United States and grew up in Idaho, and so I'm certainly familiar with grassland fires and knew personally, but also just from watching the research about the effects of grasses like cheatgrass that have really taken over large swaths of the arid high desert called the Great Basin. They burn like gasoline, basically, and they can really change landscapes. Let's get back to your neck of the woods, the Pacific Northwest of the United States. You describe this place called the Scablands, where invasive grasses are active. Can you describe the setting for us? 
it's lands that are rocky, volcanic, sparsely vegetated, very thin soils. In some places, the largest vegetation that you might find growing there would be sagebrush you know, that would grow up to your waist. But in a lot of places, there's not even that. So it's, it's this sort of rough, rocky, barren, you would think barren land, although there's lots of smaller plants that call it home. And what are the grasses doing to it? For a long time, there were no invasive grasses that seemed to really be able to take root there. Cheatgrass that I mentioned earlier hadn't really been able to make inroads into the scab lands. The conditions were just not right for it. But in recent years, there's a new invasive grass on the scene called Ventanata dubia. Looks a fair amount like cheatgrass. It's a relatively short grass, comes up to maybe your shin. It has started to encroach on these scab lands that had previously seemed kind of impervious to invasive grasses. You know, it sounds like you lived in an area where this has changed or you're nearby. So this was not a surprise to you that this was happening? It was a surprise to me that it was happening all over the world. I mostly knew my backyard, which is that cheatgrass was a pain in the neck and it burned really fast. So that was sort of the story that I grew up with. But what did sort of open my eyes was all the different places where it's happening and all the different grasses that are involved. And that it's really transforming ecosystems. It's not just sort of an extra little twist on an ecosystem. You have places that are one kind of ecosystem, like open savannas that are being turned into a different kind of ecosystem, a grassland. As you mentioned earlier on, we hear a lot about forest fires, but how are grassland fires different from fires in forests? It depends on the grass. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you can say that there's one way that grassland fires happen. There's open savannas that have native grasses and the grasses might burn slowly or they might burn quickly. So it really depends on the characteristic of the grass. But one of the characteristics of the invasive grasses that I'm talking about in the story is that they tend to burn fast and they burn hot and they, at least a number of them, are taller than the native grasses. And so they burn higher. Yeah. You describe one of these grasses as almost built to burn. You know, why is that an advantage? Why does that help them invade and colonize? It depends on whether they can handle that kind of burning better than the other species in the ecosystem. I think molasses grass is one example. That's a grass that grows with this sort of resin on its leaves. It's why it's got its name molasses grass. One scientist was saying that when you hike through it, you wind up with your boots kind of shellacked in this brown oil. So that grass will burn even when it's green. And a lot of it gets destroyed during a fire, but it grows back really quickly. It has these rhizomes, which are essentially like horizontal roots that grow along the ground or underneath the ground, and they can put up new greenery really quickly and are sort of insulated from fire. And so when the fires come through and are stoked by this grass, you have other native grasses that are not accustomed to that kind of fire intensity, and so they just don't fare as well. You also talk about how some of these invasive grasses are even pushing up against forests. They can encroach on territory that trees are in charge of right now. How does fire help that colonization? Depends on the system, but grass generally needs sunlight. It performs better in open, sunny habitats than it does in places that are really shady. And trees produce a lot of shade. So if grasses can promote fires that will reduce the overstory, 
that can create a place for them to move into. So that's sort of a generic description of what can happen. The place where I have talked to scientists about it happening is in Oregon with those scab lands. Those scab lands are these interspersed islands that occur in what is otherwise ponderosa pine forest. And ponderosa pine forests have evolved with fire. Uh, you know, they need frequent low intensity fire. In fact, there's a lot of work right now to try to get more fire onto the landscape. One of the challenges that Ventnata is presenting is that it appears that it can sort of hitchhike onto this fire and use it as a way to sort of erode the edges of the forest and gradually encroach further and further in. Do you see that this cycle is pushed forward by climate extremes or or is it going to get worse with climate change? I think it really depends on the ecosystem. There's scientists in Florida, for example, who have done research into the way that drought can make trees more vulnerable to fire that's associated with an invasive grass called Kogan grass. So drought makes longleaf pines which are sort of a native species to the Southeast, they don't grow as tall under drought conditions. And then when you have fires in Kogan grass, the flames go up higher. And so you have short trees, taller flames, and in their experiments, they had more trees die as a result of it in drought conditions. So if, you, if climate change in a particular place is associated with drought, it can make it more vulnerable to the damage from fires connected to invasive grasses, but it really depends on the place. What management approaches are being taken to address these invasive grasses and their partnership with fire? And is there anything that can be done to kind of turn it back? Folks I've talked to, it sounds like if the grass is just starting to get a foothold, there are places where they make an effort to just wipe it out as soon as it shows up. Once, once they really get into a system, you have to figure out how to live with it because you're not going to get rid of it. Hmm. Some of these areas where invasions are taking place are already prone to fire. Others, maybe there is more fire, but it might be hard to tell. How can researchers show there's a connection between fire and these invasive plants? There was a recent effort to try to understand across the United States whether invasive grasses were associated with different fire behavior. And what they found was that with a number of those grasses, there were more frequent fires. And for some people, they can just tell because they live nearby. Well, and you know, when you talk to land managers or people who even grow up in places where this kind of thing is happening, they'll sort of tell you, yeah, we, we've known that for years. But to quantify it at a continental level is a different enterprise. It's different from asking somebody, does this land sort of in your backyard burn more now that cheatgrass showed up? Right. I think you mentioned this before, but it doesn't just change now there are fires here, but there also, if there were already fires, the fires are different. Yeah. But, you know, grasses are somewhat new on the evolutionary scene. I mean, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me when I talked to scientists was they talked about the evolution of grasslands as a thing on the planet. And you have these different waves of them. The first evidence, at least according to the folks that I talked to, is around 25 million years ago, you start to see real sort of full-blown grasslands showing up in places. And then you have another wave of them between eight and three million years ago. And 
it's in that second wave that the scientists are able to start to find evidence that you have fire and grass happening hand in hand. Evidence of grass encroaching into places where it wasn't dominant before. And at the same time, the amount of fire that's happening on the landscape goes through the roof. Oh, so interesting. So there's a history of this relationship between grasses, fires, and transforming ecosystems. This is long before humans are scattering seeds all over the land and setting fire to things. This is just happening in a system where humans aren't part of the driver. But what humans have done is they have just put their foot down the gas pedal and pushed it to the floor. Right. Oh, super interesting. Thank you so much, Warren. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure talking. Warren Cornwall is an award-winning journalist and contributing correspondent for science based in Washington State. You can find a link to the feature we talked about and the entire special issue on grass at science.org slash podcast. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Evan Economo about his science advances paper on mapping the distribution of ant diversity around the world. We know a lot more about vertebrates like us, you know, mammals, where they live, what kinds there are than we do about invertebrates like insects even though there are so many more of these kinds of animals, both in number and in diversity. And of course, they have incredibly important roles in the world's ecosystems. This week in Science Advances, Evan Economo and colleagues created a map of the diversity of ants globally. Evan is here to talk about why they used estimates to do this and why we still need to keep sampling ants. Hi, Evan. Hi, nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited. So we want to be really clear that... This is about creating a map, like figuring out where diversity in ants exists. This is not just estimating diversity, right? Right. So our main goal here wasn't trying to determine, for example, how many species there are total in the world. But what we were trying to do is get a global view of where ant species are located in the world. It sounds like a really simple thing, but we really don't have this global view for groups other than vertebrates. Mm-hmm. And why did you focus on ants? The first reason is it, it's not just about ants. We're trying to use a group of insects as a model for other groups. And ants are a really good first test case. They're extremely ecologically important. 
They have very high biomass in most ecosystems around the world. And they're interesting for other reasons. They're one of the relatively rare organisms that makes complex societies like humans do. So for that reason, scientists have studied them quite a lot relative to other groups. And also because their diversity is not off the charts like some other insect groups, say beetles. So their diversity is about like birds and mammals combined. It's a good test case to sort of compare with vertebrates and it's tractable enough that we can get some handle on it. But even though ants are of interest to a lot of researchers, there's not that much information about them. Was it difficult to kind of pull together what we know about ant species? Yeah, so the way we approach doing this for invertebrates is necessarily quite different than what we can do for mammals and birds. For mammals and birds, there's a huge community of scientists and amateurs thinking about where almost every species is in the world. For example, platforms like eBird produce millions of data points a week where they've seen different birds. So we have a lot of data and a lot of brains that can think about every species and build a good map. For a group like ants, we have far fewer. Instead of many people for one species, we have the opposite situation where there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of species that no living person has thought about who had been described 100 years ago, for example. Our knowledge is a lot more gappy we have to use informatics and computational approaches to try to overcome those limitations. What was your starting data set like? The thing about invertebrates is there is a lot of data out there. It's just fragmented and scattered and hard to access places. In old papers that were published 80 years ago or in museum collections or other personal data sets. And so the big goal here was to try to get all that data together and harmonize it and put it in one place. And so we went through about 10,000 papers manually. Wow. And digitized these records. It was a, a very, of course, long and arduous process. And I had several people working in my lab for several years doing this. And, and we also put together large specimen databases that have been accrued in different places. For example, one big effort called AntWeb that has hundreds of thousands of specimen records. So people upload their records. The museums will upload their records. We consolidated that. We got records from many museums around the world and we put it all together. And once you have it in digital format, then you can start doing computation on it. Once you collected all this, all these records, two million records, cleaned it up, made it digital. And then we want to make a map to understand where ants live and where the highest levels of diversity are. Yeah, right. So we built this computational pipeline to go from those more raw records. And we used algorithms. And one of the most important ones we used was the sort of back end of Google Maps. Google Maps is really good at trying to figure out where some text data refers to. I and mean, if you're typing into the bar, it's pretty good at guessing what you're trying to find. With that, we can get actually a prediction for a point and importantly, the uncertainty around that point. So if it just says Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's some medium level of uncertainty, but if it says Massachusetts, much bigger. We got that and had an estimate of points for each record. And then we performed a bunch of error checking. And finally, we got a clean data set of points for each species. Once you have all your locations, how does that turn into a global map of ants? Yeah, so we may know one species has been found in these three different places, but we want to know the whole map of where it exists. And so we haven't actually sampled every place on Earth by a long shot. We need to somehow predict where they've not been found. 
the way we do this in our field is through a, a species distribution model based on the environments it's known to be in and the parts of the world it's known to be in. We try to model the likely distribution of it. And it's not perfect, but we get some estimate that fills in all the gaps for each species. So from that, we have a model of the geographic distribution of every species, and we stack them together into an aggregate map. And we can calculate different metrics or patterns from that stack of ranges. Mm -hmm. And one important thing that you looked at was you compared it to what's going on with vertebrates. Yeah. So basically, the data that scientists have to look at global patterns is all vertebrates. So all of our conservation attention, all the money that goes into conservation and our understanding of the processes at that scale are highly biased toward one group of organisms. So for the comparisons that you made, we're going to talk here about diversity and rarity. We calculated two things, the richness, so how many species were in every point on Earth of ants, and then also a metric called rarity, which is basically where all these small range species are. So species that are restricted to a small area. We're, of course, interested in that from a conservation perspective, because the species that are very restricted to a small area are the ones that are most vulnerable to extinction. And those areas that have lots of species like that need our preferential attention for conservation. What did you see in terms of overlaps in diversity, richness, and rarity? They weren't so different that it was out of range of how different the vertebrates are from each other. So, you know, mammals and amphibians and birds, they don't match exactly either with each other. So in general, it was, I think it's good news for conservation that if we do have some data on biodiversity, we can have confidence those areas are important for all these groups we're not measuring. Were there any um, surprises where ants were more diverse than you expected or there was more species richness than expected? Yeah, you see certain areas of the world show up for ants that are not quite as high for vertebrates, such as the Mediterranean region. Ants do relatively well in semi-arid and, and arid environments, so some of those regions around the world. And then on a finer scale, there, there were a number of other places where, for example, there are many small range ants, but uh, not as many small range vertebrates. And also, equally, there were big gaps. So for example, in the Andes mountains are hotspots for small range vertebrates, all the groups, but in the southern Andes south of, say, Ecuador, they weren't for ants. That led us to the next problem, which is how do we know that the map we made from the data that exists isn't biased by places where we just happen to study a lot. Right. So if we're always studying these areas of species richness, then maybe more ants have been sampled there than other places. Yeah. And just through the, the idiosyncrasies. So there have been a few researchers that have done a lot of work on ants in Central America. And then a country like Colombia has a very big and active research community that are doing great work. And so they've gotten pretty far down the line in documenting their ant diversity. But there are other places where we haven't had a lot of research over the years. And that may be idiosyncratic to ants. I mean, maybe bird researchers have worked in that place. And so we had to figure out those places where there was mismatch, was it because of the real biology or was it because of how much we studied it? Mm -hmm. So were you able to make some corrections for a potential bias like that? The good thing is we know more or less how much data we have from every region. So what we did is we used machine learning to try to predict what would the map look like if we were to 
sample around the world equally. Like if we were in the future where we've sampled every place on earth extremely well, what areas have all the right conditions to have a lot of species or a lot of small range species, but that we may not recognize right now? We sort of think of this now as like a treasure map. This tells us where can we go to find these hidden species so we can conserve them and study them. In general, we always had ideas of where, where it might be interesting, but to actually have a quantitative prediction is really useful for guiding future work. And, uh, you know, it's a hypothesis. It's a model. So we got to go out and test it and see, is this right? Is this also a good model for an approach to mapping diversity in other vertebra invertebrate groups, like if you wanted to map beetles? I think part of the value of our study is that we navigated a pathway to get to this point, and there were many different challenges along the way. Some of the methods we used are likely to be useful for other groups, and we'll see. You know, we, we definitely learned a lot from people working on vertebrates, and it's far from perfect. I sort of talk about it like it's you know, in astronomy, we have these wonderful images from the Webb telescope. In every round of astronomy, we go up and we take pictures and we see things, but there's more questions and there's some things that are not resolvable. And then we improve it over time and we get a better and better view. And so I think of it like this, this is sort of the first time we took a picture of some big galaxy and it's not perfect. It doesn't have all the information. There may be problems with it, but we can start iterating and improving it and improving it both for ants and for other groups. Thanks, Evan. Thank you so much. Evan Economo is a professor at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, where he leads the biodiversity and biocomplexity unit. If you want to explore the map yourself, you can see it at antmaps.org, and you can find a link to the paper in Science Advances at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.